Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Why are you following me? The stuff you wear is inappropriate for what you're planning on doing. You don't know anything about me. I'm ready. You're not. And none of the stuff that you're thinking means anything anyway. Never kissed anyone before. Hello and welcome to Still Watching. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. If you're just joining us for the first time, what we do on this podcast is Richard and I pick usually one TV show at a time that we are watching kind of obsessively and we break it down week by week talking about each new episode. But right now we are in the midst of, of an overlap. We're mm. in the thick of an overlap. Uh, so you may have seen our first episode covering uh, the new HBO miniseries, The Undoing that dropped on Sunday night. This is Monday night and we are finishing up. We are who we are. We've got two more episodes. This is the penultimate episode of We Are Who We Are. So you'll have two weeks of overlap of double HBO from Richard Lawson. We and are the Robinson. undoing. <laughs> uh, who are we the doing? Are we here sure. for you. Um, what, are, what are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? And then also in the midst of all of that, uh, there will be a special one-off episode covering uh, The Mandalorian from Anthony Bresican and myself. So an embarrassment of riches. What else do you have to think about right now in, in uh, end of October, early November? Nothing else could possibly be on your mind. Um and that brings me to my central question of this episode of We Are Who We Are, episode seven. Is that what we're on? The sure. penultimate episode? Yeah. Um, I want to get to some emails, but I just, I just want to like drop my main thesis, uh, before we get there. Richard, was this show about actually, actually, actually about the Trump election all along? kind of feels like it doesn't it like yeah. <laughs> secretly like i feel like there were a couple things in this episode that kind of walked up and slapped us in the face and was like why weren't you paying attention 
Yeah. You know, uh, and I think that feeling uh, is maybe one that I a lot of us felt um, a couple days or in that night, you know, of the election, a couple days after or that night or, or months after or whatever, was just like, man, we didn't see a bad thing coming and before until it was there. So the um, as we mentioned last week, last week's episode ended with, um, you know, Sarah getting the news about this convoy um, while she's watching, you know, the results of the election night. So everything, you know, if we were to divide this show into two parts, pre-election, post-election, like everything we're watching now is post-election. And so, uh, you know, we're going to break it down. But I, I rewatched, I watched this episode twice. And the second time through, I was really thinking about it as like a dark mirror of what we've seen before on the show. So, um, and, and I would be more resentful of that potential premise were it not for the fact that I think the show has just done really excellent character work all along. And so I am emotionally invested in these characters. Um, so I don't mind if their emotional journey is also a larger metaphor for this <laughs> dramatic event we went through together. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. All right. So before we get into like the, the specifics of the episode, we are going to hit some listener emails. You can always email us stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We've been getting some incredible uh, emails all season long from you guys. Thank you all so much. So let us start. Uh, oh, uh, so Giovanni, who emailed us, I don't know, last week or the week before, um, emailed in response to my question about the shot of um, Sarah and Maggie sort of staring down the camera at each other and whether or not we felt like this is something Luca Guadagnino had done before. And, um, Giovanni linked me to this iconic scene from Bigger Splash that I had forgotten where it's like Tilda Swinton up against a wall, uh, sort of looking back at Ray Fiennes. It's, it's a, it's a, like a very similar shot. And mm-hmm. like that image of her, up against like a, uh, I think it's like a blue, st- pale blue stucco wall with like beautiful winged eyeliner, sort of like looking at him. I was like, oh, of course, <laughs> yes. The answer is yes. Luca has done this before, and uh, Giovanni points out that he did it earlier uh, in the series with a shot between Danny and Craig, which sort of comes uh, comes to bear in this episode because Danny is one of the people hit hardest uh, by the loss of Craig in this episode. So um, there we go. And then um, Owen wrote in to talk to us about uh, further about uh, Blood Orange, which we talked about um, as as the overarching musical influence of this series last week. Um, Owen writes in episode six, the dance number is a recreation of the actual music video for Blood Orange's song. Blood Orange's song, Time Will Tell. That song itself is a mashup of two of his songs, Champagne Coast and It Is What It Is. Time Will Tell has obviously been a prominent song throughout the series so far, and I find that really interesting considering it isn't one of Dev Hines' most popular songs. The lyrics of the two songs, which he included in Time Will Tell, present an interesting combination of ideas, and I think the fantasy dance sequence brings those ideas to a peak. It's like a physical manifestation of those lyrics shown through the dance they do. I don't quite understand it fully, but I thought it was a great sequence to include. I do find it a little bit odd and self-indulgent to see Dev's music being featured so heavily in the show, mostly because of the scene where Fraser says Dev Hines is a musical genius. That recreation of his own music video adds to that layer of self-indulgence, but I can't appreciate that to an extent. 
content. His music is so atmospheric and fits the energy of the show perfectly. Do you have any thoughts as to what the significance of that scene was? If you care to explore it further, of course, I'm a first time listener of this podcast because I wanted to hear someone talk about the show, but I will definitely be listening to future shows you discuss. Y'all are amazing. So thank you, Owen. Uh, glad to have hooked you with this weird show. Um, I, I think we discussed this last week that we felt like that sequence, that fantasy sequence was something of like, um, this is our bubble. This is our shared bubble sort of moment. Richard, did you have a further interpretation of it? No, I mean, just to kind of restate it, it's, it's like, um, it's an illustration of that intense, um, friendship that people that age can have, especially when they're, a little, they they feel they're a little outside uh, on the outside of their immediate community. Um, it's just you know us two weirdos against the world kind of thing. Um, that's a really uh, powerful bond and one that does um, create its own sense of escape, you know. And I think that's kind of what this was illustrating. Uh, and it's a bit sad in a way to think of it just you know happening so recently in this show's timeline because it feels like after this episode everything is uh kind of torn to bits right in this episode um a couple things happen one like i think we see fraser kind of at his most possessive um he says twice um what does it have to do with us like what does sarah have to do with us or what do they her sort of her old friends have to do with us um and, um, you know, the way he's just sort of like physically holding on to, to Caitlin Tudger. So, um, so that is interesting. And then also, yeah, just this sort of like before and after things, this, uh, we'll, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit more, but like one of the like Trump election themes that I felt like really shone through in this episode is this idea of like tribalism and circling the wagons around your, your unit and like, how does their unit survive that when they're trying to be, when other people are trying to pull them into these other pre-existing units? Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. So Brayden wrote in uh, a couple questions for us, a couple prompts. Um, number one, uh, if frequent Guadagnino collaborator Tilda Swinton were to have a cameo on the show, what sort of character would she play? Richard, any thoughts? Dreamcasting Tilda on the show. Well, some sort of Italian magistrate who like visits the base <laughs> or something. I uh, like that. You know, right? That, that would that would sort of that would sort of work. Or, oh, I just I I know what the owner of the Russian villa that they destroyed. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my piano. <laughs> what have you done? <laughs> what have you done with my piano? Um, I would love to see that. Uh, okay. Um. And then we've got um, prompt number two. HBO is known for shows with nudity. Any thoughts on the very different semi nudity represented here? Obviously, there's like a couple, a couple, you know, notable instances. But in this episode, we get a newish uh, scenario, which is Sarah sort of changing in the middle of a situation room setting. Um, so this might be a good opportunity to talk about that scene and spe- like specifically, um, what's your what's your read on that, Richard? Well, I think with a lot of Sarah, her characterization, there's an admirable boldness to that moment and also a really strange self-involved kind of exhibitionism to it as well. You know, I, I think that especially given that there's this gory um, 
these images playing on the big monitors in this kind of command center of these three young people who were just killed. Uh, uh, and I understand that what she is communicating is that like, it doesn't matter. Like we're all soldiers here. That's what she says. Um, uh, who, who, you know, we, we can't care about such petty things as, you know, body shame or politeness or whatever in these moments. And I totally get that. However, um, but <laughs> yes, knowing what we do with her up to this point, yeah, I can't help but feel there's an aspect of it which doesn't negate the other aspect of it, but it's there too. Of like, yeah, look at me, you know, like, yeah. and um, that just seems true of of who she is. She's a complicated uh, leader. Yeah, that other people's discomfort. It feels it feels transgressive to me, um, especially given the like moment that they're going through, and that it just like it it would have taken, you know, half a minute for her to duck out the room and change elsewhere. And and um, I think crucially, yeah. her her eyes are not still on the monitors. It's not like I literally can't move from this spot right. because I can't. I have to. I'm I can't shouting miss orders or like yeah. whatever. Yeah, no, exactly. it's not that. Yeah. It's it's more a show of something than it is a practicality, I guess. Right, and Jonathan's involvement in it as like you know in dressing her is you know I'm sure part of his job description, but also just feels like uh, just yet another power play kind of thing. So, um, all right, and then the last, and I think especially for a show that is that has a character like Harper at the center of it, who is trying to figure out their, their body, their identity, how they feel about it. Like that changes the times we see both male and female bodies on display. You know what I mean? When you have a character at the center of it, who is feeling at times or maybe at all times, like they're in the wrong body sort of thing. So, um, all right. The last prompt from Braden is, um, I'm really impressed by Jack Dylan Grazer's very physical performance, the way he maneuvers doorways and hallways and spaces with his very clumsy adolescent body, the way he flicks the book he's giving Jonathan when he pulls it out of the packaging, the way he seems to embody frenzy. Any thoughts? Is that working for you as well? Um, Yeah. I mean, like there are, there are times when it, you know, we, we talked about this a lot in the first episode. There's times when it's tough to watch Frasier because of that, chaotic energy but i i've grown to have a lot of um warm soft feelings for this kid and and so then his frenzy often reads less as annoyance to me and and more just like seeking like he's seeking calm he's seeking peace somewhere and not finding it and that's i don't know that's where i am with his character right now and i do agree i think i think jack dylan grazier is is doing a great job uh with that performance yeah, I mean, I think because, it, uh, you know, this uh, Frasier is at a strange age, at a strange time, and in a strange place. And reacting strangely to that, almost his reaction sometimes to things uh, don't feel at all even related to the whatever stimuli are surrounding him. They kind of seem sourced from some other kind of unknown place. But, but that's kind of weirdly a familiar feeling you know it's like and i think that the way that that stuff kind of the the surreality of being on this base at in 2016 right after the election like then runs headlong into the surreality of death and especially when you're a young person and maybe this is the most significant death you've experienced in your life let alone appear not like right. your grandma um 
and how fucking strange that is and how there is no right reaction. There's no really wrong reaction. I mean, within limits. Right. Um, and really, I think that, that, you know, I think when people say, Oh, I felt numb, they, I think at least in my personal case, like I assumed that to mean some sort of actual physical coldness or a kind of a sense of muffled stasis, you know, like I'm numb, I'm, I'm, I'm frozen. It's not that it's just, there's almost this kind of bizarre blankness that sets in and, and watching Fraser both have that in himself, but also awkwardly bounce off of other people's shock in this episode, I think again, is a really strong example of this actors, this young actors, like, and Guadagnino's as a director, like their 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 keen awareness of like how one's body might function in all of this strangeness. Yeah, um, I really really like that. Um, this next email comes from Eliza, who identifies as they them uh, in their signature, and Eliza wrote us a, a lovely, really long email. I'm going to take one section. Um, it was really interesting in this episode to hear in context a line that's in the podcast's opening sound cue. Fraser says, none of the stuff that you're thinking means anything anyway. I wasn't sure what that would refer to, but it makes so much sense that he is saying it, um, it to Harper in reference to all of the efforts they are putting into their gender performance. As a non-binary person myself, that really hit home. Sometimes, especially early on in understanding your gender identity, when it is not aligned with your gender assigned at birth, you get really caught up in the performance of things. Do I look androgynous, femme, mask? Do I look enough? Uh, do I look like I fit into static binary ideas of gender enough? Or do I rebel against them enough? Especially as Harper is trying to pass that's in quotations, that is something that they seem to be very focused on. And that is, of course, awesome if that's where they feel most at home and comfortable with themselves. But I think what Fraser is saying with that line is that identity is about so much more than just the presentation and performance. Of course, that's a huge part of it for many folks in terms of comfort and even safety. It's also about how you feel, what's happening inside. Harper is at the stage where exploring involves a lot of the externals. And it seems to me that Fraser here is suggesting that Harper's validity doesn't come from how they look, but how they feel. It's possible I'm wrong because even in 2016, the dominant narrative was still very much centered on trans identity within the binary. But if anyone might have clued, have been clued into it, it seems like it would be Frasier. And then um, Eliza goes on to say, um, on another note, it's just really nice to hear folks like you talking in a sensitive and serious way about characters slash a show that deals with a complicated gender and sexual identity. Just want to say thank you for having navigational conversations between yourselves publicly. Hopefully that makes other folks also consider their own language and perception. Well-intentioned people so often shy away from complex discussion of gender for fear of being wrong and ending up not trying at all which is way more harmful than continuing to try. Like with pronouns, for example, I wish more people knew that I and other trans non-binary folks would rather you try, get it wrong and say sorry, than try again, as opposed to just disregarding it altogether. So thank you for that. Um, so thank you for that email, Eliza. Like I definitely have had my own anxieties um, as we've talked about uh, on the show of like getting it wrong. Um, and thank you to everyone who's written in and sort of uh, given their opinion or guidance on um, how we might be even better uh, talking about something like this. Uh, I, Richard, I was wondering if you had any response to what Eliza wrote. Well, yeah, I mean, I appreciate uh, Eliza writing in and, and, and listening. And, and you know, I, I'm, I wouldn't ask anyone to, like, 
you know, be, you know, be, be sensitive to me. I, I'm just figuring this stuff out. You know, I'm not saying that, but I think that like, yeah, the point is to have, um, conversations that might feel uncomfortable, but like get us to hopefully, um, a common understanding. And, um, I, I think that, you know, as it pertains to the show itself, like that sort of, that, that back and forth, that push and pull in many, in kind of omnidirectional, you know, un- unsureness. Like, I-, I think in this episode, you see, uh, you know, this conversation about hormone therapy and Fraser, who's so supportive, then saying, oh, it's all, you know, I, I think there are limits to Fraser's compassion and understanding uh, and-, right. and-, and progressiveness about this. But I think Fraser is putting sort of these limits on it for whatever reason that, um, doesn't mean that he's a bad friend to Harper. It just means that, like, especially for people that age, like, it's, there's, there's not necessarily a right sort of supportive path through. Right. Um, and I think that, like, but I do think at the same time that conversation is set in the episode when it is to juxtapose, like, you know, Fraser's kind of youth and sort of like hypothetical thinking to like, well, it's very real in Harper's case. And then it, it, another very real thing comes crashing in, in the form of these deaths. My partial read on um, Fraser's insensitivity around that subject, when he says something like, you know, hormones will give you cancer, whatever it is he's saying. Um, it's partially part of that, like, frustration that his mom is involved in this you know what i mean that like i i think uh you know it it might it might have uh equally as much to do with other limits uh in his understanding of things but i think this idea that sarah is somehow integral to this decision for harper makes fraser immediately resistant to it um so that's my that's my read on that Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Um... All right, let's talk about a couple before and afters. <laughs> um, let's start with uh, let's start with the party at the Russian house. I think this is one of the clearest before and afters. I mean, we talked about this in the in the first party episode in the wedding episode, how it felt like a, a you know Craig saying goodbye to something, and that I don't think uh, you know I don't think we were surprised that 
Craig, it's sad, obviously, but I don't think we were surprised to find Craig on the casualty list here. It seems to be what the show was telegraphing this. Um, but that doesn't make it any less sort of impactful, especially for these kids, uh, who, as you say, this might be their first time dealing with death, certainly with death of someone who is so close to them in age. And so this idea of like putting the youthful exuberance of the first party at the Russian house through a dark mirror with a stormy night outside uh, and then just giving us this nightmare. I mean, I, I was anxious through that party episode, but now that party episode just feels like a beautiful summertime, uh, youthful romp celebration of love and life and carnal appetites. And this just feels like, you know, it's a bad trip for Danny specifically, but for all of them, really um, the, the constant clanging of metal and, and, and the awful lighting and everything that's just happening uh, in that sequence. Uh, Richard, how did it sit with you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we knew that, that 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 earlier episode with the house party was sort of meant to be kind of prelapsarian. You know, it was yeah. about a lost Eden that uh, an innocence, maybe, let's say, even though nothing they were doing was all that quote-unquote innocent, but sure. yeah. um, by certain standards. Um I didn't know necessarily that the show was going to kind of pendulum so hard in the other direction. I mean, I, I, I felt some sort of some disaster cataclysm felt looming. And I don't think that that, by the way, I don't think that wave has crashed yet. Um, not fully. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is a poignant, there's still a poignancy to the older episode in that, like, this was the last time that these kids would all be together. It was the last time that maybe they all could have felt young, truly, you know, safe. I, I think like, you know, an uh, immortal. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean like I, it, I was much, I was much older, but I was like 28 when one of my best friends died very suddenly. And I, I, I mean, I haven't really thought about it in these terms that often, but I think in some ways, like, and, and granted, 28 is kind of old to have this realization, but I think a lot of me and my, our, our, a lot of her other close friends were like, oh, we're adults now, you know, like, like all of that, because what it does in a weird way is color youthful memory as over because mm. it, you know, if, if one person's gone, then that era has officially ended, you know? Um, so I think that's, that poignancy is still there. But if you want to zoom out a little further and look at what I think you and I both, Joanna, suspect has become a sort of allegorical show, then I don't know how I feel about the possibility that this whole arc, this friendship was meant to be almost like Obama era times before the fall. You know, I, I don't know if, if Guadagnino and the two other writers are being that literal about it, but um, I don't know. It, it makes the show something a bit pricklier and certainly colder uh, and more uh, shrewd. Whereas I think in the early episodes, I thought this was this kind of like rambling gush of teenage emotion and exploration. Yeah. And now I think it's something a bit more fixed and um, more downbeat. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I, um, hopefully someone will ask them and maybe um, I should do my journalistic duty and ask them, but like, I am curious how how concrete that metaphor feels for them as creatives. For me, you know, I, I don't want to be too like precious and cute with with the parallel or anything like that. But I think the episode itself is is making that really clear. 
in the moment where when Sarah is called out for sending the, these troops out uh, too early, ill prepared, she says the thing where she's like, haven't you been watching the news? People want a leader who can make tough decisions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. She is calling herself the Trump of this scenario, which is wild. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, if so then if you if you put Sarah in the Trump role, which is where she puts herself then you know you were you were talking i think it was last week just sort of about this idea of like um this family of sarah and maggie and uh fraser coming in and sort of like feeding off this other family next door and like i don't want to call you know richard's a trump supporter i don't want to call like richard's family like an idyllic like you know he, they have their massive problems over there next door but this idea of like sarah as a trump like figure coming in and and causing this huge tragedy and refusing to take any responsibility for it. Um, I don't know. I can't, I can't help but think um, that that's what we're watching here. So. Um, yeah. I mean, and I think it's also like to, f- to the, 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 the helplessness of suddenly being under new authority, you know, yeah. it's such a weird feeling where, and, and, and a scary feeling and depending on the, on the circumstance where it's just like, wait, all of a sudden, like, the material world looks in, the same and yet like the rules are somehow different now and and uh value system seems to have shifted either big ways or little ways and 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 um you know it's interesting that the trumpy guy in the show is the one lashing out against the tr- in ideology maybe anyway in this like instance trumpier figure you know like and I think that what it's kind of showing is it's like a little American microcosm in a foreign country uh, where there's this ever these ever undulating shifts in power and resentments and what gets lost in those shifts is in this case, the lives of three people, you know, right. that they just kind of fall through the fault line and, and, and not that they get forgotten, but they get remembered in the wrong way or they get pinned, their lives get pinned to the wrong cause. Um, you know, and justice is never done. Um, and I think that that frustration, that anger, uh, is so palpably at the center of this episode. It is interesting to me that like, I don't mean to sound, I, I really don't want to sound callous about this because obviously it's like a tragedy when anyone dies, but, um, this seems, like I have to imagine that they experience casualties among their troops, you know, occasionally, sometimes, right? This it, doesn't this feel like this was like the first time anyone had ever died on the base or, or, or from the base? You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I know what you mean. I don't know enough about the statistics in terms of like you know deaths had have slowed to. I mean, I wouldn't want to reduce any any death to a trickle, but right, like it's right. it's not what it was at its peak. Yeah. Um. And maybe it was something about this particular unit that went out. Maybe they were particularly young. Maybe the real yeah. anger is that because they weren't trained and like there's a feeling of like it was it was avoidable, more avoidable than past deaths. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, Craig, like the, the way that Craig hits like our teens personally um, is 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 completely understandable. And the way it hits like Jenny, who who thinks of Craig as like almost another son and stuff like that, like a lot of that makes sense to me. Or like Richard, who personally trained them. But the way we see it sort of hit base wide, um, you know. And I'm I was also confused. I don't I don't mean to like, um, you know, 
overly nitpick an episode, but I was, I, the, the reveal in the school was also a little confusing to me because like how many of those kids have a brother? I'm still confused about like Sam and Craig and their existence on the base. Like how many kids in that school have a brother that's also on the base? Because I would assume that most of those kids were the children of people on that base, you know? Couldn't so, it be, mul- I mean, couldn't it be multi generational, like a parent serving and a kid serving? It's could. I, right. I don't know yeah, how often that happens, but like, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, I was, uh, it, it was just an interesting, like, slow reveal to, to Harper, to Danny, to, uh, via Brittany crying, via the, the missed calls from Sam, all of that sort of like that felt like a, a, a slower reveal, but maybe, I mean, maybe that's very insensitive and maybe the truth is like, you would deny the likely reality of a friend death for as long as you possibly could um, in that scenario. So, um, all right, let's talk about another uh, through the looking glass uh, sort of moment. And that I would say would be what Frazier does when Harper goes off um, with her old friends and he's left to his own devices. Uh, first things first, he tries to go to the movies, very relatable mm. frustration of not being able to go to the movies. We're all feeling that right now. Um, and then he goes to Jonathan's and there's this like s- seemingly attempted seduction by Jonathan and his lady friend of Fraser and Fraser's rejection of that. Um, and this like, um, sort of hellish vibe of something that uh, had landed to us at least as like, maybe there's a freeze on of danger there, but there was also just like something really sweet feeling about um, the Jonathan and Frazier interaction before. Um, did you have the same interpretation I did? Like, how did you feel about it? Yeah, this was the moment where I was like, oh, this show has been fucking with us the whole time. Yeah. Uh, should we have been seeing that Jonathan was grooming this kid this whole time? You know, should we view it as grooming? Uh, was that pe- that trip with the with the girlfriend just kind of showing up unannounced? I mean, you know, Jonathan knew she was coming, but like Fraser didn't, right? You know, is this is this their pattern? Is this their routine? You know, I don't we don't know those things necessarily, but like it was immediately clear when he answered the door in his underwear. I was like, oh, something's not right. Yeah, you know. Yep. And then it proceeded to get more and more not right. Yeah. Um, and. I think that what's so, I mean, you know, from a filmmaking standpoint, like that scene is so well choreographed, um, to kind of just be that, that little tumble into something completely that com- forever changes a dynamic, forever changes a reality, but happens in a kind of fluid moment, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that like, you know, many young people, older people too have that moment where it's like oh i guess this is like happening and now things are different you know and i think that that was articulated well the problem is is that there's a massive power dynamic a massive age difference happening here uh in a way that i that i think what was so brilliantly done about the scene was that like it it's not quite what fraser wanted in his fantasy maybe but it's close enough and then it's really he's not it's not what he wanted at all and i think that you know, a lot of kids who get involved with older people in some way, a crush or something more, have that moment of like, uh, it's not that I, it, it you know, they, they, they kind of realize their age and limits in a way. Not everyone does, obviously. But 
Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I really empathized with him in that scene, and I really thought the scene was well staged. But in a bigger thematic way, I don't know. It just it feels like the show kind of, uh, and maybe appropriately, uh, scolding our investment in that relationship. Mm. Um, or maybe we're being, you know, Puritan Americans about it. I don't really know. Where, I mean, where do you fall on it? Well, I just think it's... <sighs> It's just another example in this episode of like the things that you thought might be charming or full of joy in this new reality uh, is not are not. You know what I mean? I think that goes for Jenny and Maggie as well. And we'll talk about that in a second. But like, you know what I mean? Like the the moments of like beauty and joy with with an exception, I would say, in the closing. Well, closing couple shots of the episode, actually. Um, But I I just think that that's. I don't know that it's scolding us. Uh, it just, I think it's more like, you know, it, it did, it did want us to feel like glowing and happy and charmed by these various things. Uh, so that when it pulled the rug out, we felt the loss of them, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, on a more superficial level, I do always love those moments in, um, film and television i was just watching um screeners for the netflix series the queen's gambit where like an exact same thing happens where a character goes to a you know someone that they've been attracted to goes and sees where they live for the first time and they're like and the glamour falls away a bit yeah and you're like oh oh you have like a a sit-up machine in your apartment and and half-eaten pizza and this is your decor and this is oh you have a snake like i don't know like this is this is how you live and like i'm not you know i'm not judging jonathan's apartment necessarily but fraser certainly is and he's like this isn't the like beautiful figure intellectual figure up on a pedestal that i had you know where i had placed him sort of thing yeah does that make sense yeah it does make sense i mean well first of all um i just reviewed queen's gambit everyone should watch it it's really good it is um but I, I think, yes, I think absolutely there is judgment there. But I think also it, it changes the terms of how he knows Jonathan slightly also in a, for a brief second, alluring way, because mm. it brings him to earth. I think that, you know, he looks at the bed where the sheets are unmade and he realizes like, oh, he like fucks in that bed, you know, right. like, yeah. like, like he's a person who like, and and so is she. And there's like a real, there's like a, a kind of, I mean, whatever, a carnal reality to him all of a sudden that is not just this kind of crushy fantasy, you know, and that's appealing for a second. But then I think because Fraser's young and maybe inexperienced, like uh, that gets very overwhelming very quickly, which is a totally normal reaction to that kind of thing. Right. And I think that that's so well calibrated because, you know, like Jonathan looks cute in his little tidy whities and whatever. And like the, the moment seems dangerously teeming with, with possibility and, and like it could actually happen. But then when he realizes like what that happening might actually, and I don't think it's just because the girlfriend's there. I think if the girlfriend hadn't been there, it probably would have still felt to some extent not right. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I do. I agree. And I, and I, and watching that scene, I was like, I don't know which way this is going to go and also what I should be rooting for. Like, will there be some sort of like merciful, 
escape in Fraser experiencing this in this moment? Will that will that be actually kind of a healing distraction for him in this moment? Um and him choosing to leave, you know, helps me understand his his discomfort and how that wasn't right for him in that moment. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. like it, it really could have gone a number of ways. And I was sort of like ready to try to understand why it would go any of those ways, you know? Yeah. And then the, 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 the sad, I mean, the, the unfortunate, but also again, somewhat realistic thing is that afterward, after he leaves, which was the right thing to do, mm-hmm. he's chastising himself while also mourning the sudden thing that's now changed. I mean, it's like the friend yeah. dying. It's like, well, now the past is the, is, is irretrievable, you know, like Jonathan, like he knows he he and Jonathan will probably not go back to the old way. Um, but he also, so, so that there's a a kind of sudden mourning of that, but there's also just like he clearly is like, oh, I've I'm I fucked it up. I should you know, and it's like, no, you you should have left. Like it was good that you left, um, but he doesn't quite maybe know that you know in some ways. Yeah, and the um, I might mispronounce this word slightly, but I am fond of typing it, so I'm going to try to say it. It's anhedonia, right? That's how you would pronounce it. Just this like yeah. inability to access pleasure, and I feel like that's. A, a theme of the whole episode for everyone. You know what I mean? Cause like he then goes and, and drinks alcohol in a way that is not, that is just like a uh, trying to create a numbing agent, right? Just like to feel that actual numbness that yeah people think they're going to yeah. feel. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. So let's talk about um, Maggie and Jenny in this episode. Um, Cause we get a scene of them undecorating the hall of its Thanksgiving decorations to set up for this um, memorial service. Um, and we get the complete sort of dissolution of their affair, which again was like, I thought a joyful thing um, in its own way. Uh, and then just completely falls apart. Part of this is like, this is partially instigated by Jenny in terms of like being very much like a, you don't understand like what, what we as a community have lost here. You're new. You didn't know Craig well enough. You didn't think of him as a son the way that I do. And then also like, uh, like you just mentioned with Fraser, Jenny is kind of irrationally, but what's rational in grief, blaming herself and, and their affair for, you know, Craig's death, which is, you know, obviously not fair to put on herself, but is, is a justification for, for pushing Maggie away, um, in this. But that's, that's one part of it. But the other part of it is like, as I mentioned before, the clear circling of wagons of us versus them. And like, if, if it's a question of whose team is Maggie on, she's on Sarah's team. It's the Sarah and Maggie unit. Um, I don't want to say that was never in danger because Sarah herself is unsure if that was ever in danger. She says this was, this is different than other times, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, and Maggie says, no, we don't know the answer to that. But I think that previous scene where like Jenny was outside and Maggie and Sarah were like having sex on the couch inside, you know, and it was just sort of like, it just never felt like that bond was actually in in danger that maggie has had her like dalliances but they never actually threatened the sanctity of this bond and then maggie you know who has seemed like the nice kind caring healthcare worker sort of figure is the one who's like uh yeah you know richard and jenny have to go and you know you have to be the one to make it happen call your friend use your influence get them gone and it's a it's a it's a cold moment from her 
um, in this new reality. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. Did you, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's preservationist, you know, like, yeah. and, and, and what, when faced with calamity or potential calamity, like if you have access to that kind of, if you have power's ear, you know, yeah. like, why wouldn't you use it? You know, um, it's, it's like cronyism kind of it's, you know, it's, it's favor trading. It's whatever, you know, it's, and I love the detail of my friend from Yale. Oh yeah. Exactly. You know, it, and it, and I think we've seen those kind of cultural signifiers in the way the different houses are direct. The, um, the two different houses are decorated and stuff. And then Sarah's saying, Oh, we'll get a palazzo or a, or a Baroque palace in the, in right. town. And you're like, okay, right. so you guys are living a very different um, set of possibilities than the house next door right. is, you know? Right. Um, and again, like going back to what I said earlier, like about this episode kind of casting the show in a kind of colder, shrewder light, like here's a perfect scene kind of demonstrating that, you know, it doesn't make me necessarily like any of them less. It's just not that we need to like them exactly. But like, I, I think you're just seeing like, okay, like the dreamy thing is over. And now here are the actual mechanics of like how people operate and how they protect themselves and preserve power and uh deal with problems a lot of times they just you know ship the problem off in whatever way you know however that means it's um you know it's the it's the show's constant subversion of expectations in terms of like um we've been waiting for richard to pop off and he does in a way at this memorial service but not in a way that feels like um as you say uh you know as you said earlier you're not sure this wave is fully crested yet but like i think we've been waiting for danny to explode we've been waiting for richard to explode and like you know richard gets drunk and speaks out of turn in a memorial service but that's not the i don't know american beauty uh chris cooper ticking time bomb thing that i've been expecting from him and um you know and ultimately it's sarah who has caused the most damage on this base um, in terms of getting three people killed. Um, you know, if, if we believe that narrative, which I, which I kind of do, like, it sounds like she really skirted a uh, convention to send them off um, when she did, you know? Uh, so anyway, yeah. So Richard, um, I, 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 you know, and to have like, when you talk about cronyism and like to have it be like, the lesbian woman who we are used to thinking of kind of as an underdog and to have her in that position. Um, uh, you know, obviously like, you know, there's a lot to say about like, you know, white women and white feminism and like the ways in which, um, they align themselves with power. That's, that's something that we've been talking about a lot in 2020. Um, and, uh, I think it's, it's really beautifully and chillingly done in this episode. So there you go. Um, just two more things that I want to talk about. Um, I'm going to talk about the end of the episode first, then circle back to something else. Uh, let's talk about Danny. There's a, a scene in this episode where, um, you know, like, uh, a, a chaplain or, or sorry, I don't know, uh, their exact title asks Sarah if she wants to pray. And she says, you know, like later, we'll do that later. Um, and then there's also the sequence where we see, everyone sort of doing a moment of silence standing around the base shots of everyone in like wherever they are stopping and bowing their head perhaps in prayer or at least self-reflection um but at the end of the episode we see this uh we see danny um you know um 
a culmination of his journey in this season um, towards a different kind of faith and um, trying to find a different kind of peace. Uh, earlier in the episode, in, in the like hellish nightmare party at the Russian house, when he first refuses to have any alcohol, stuff like that, you know, his friends are like, well, now I know there is no God, <laughs> there is no God and there's, there is nothing and stuff like that. And, and we've been worried about Danny either like popping off or whatever it is. But I think this turn of him trying to find peace and connection and meaning uh, in this ceremony, a dangerous ceremony for him to commit probably on this base or at least in his household. Um, but still one that I think we're supposed to take as um, a positive uh, is my interpretation. Um, I think is a really interesting ending to this episode. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's showing certainly that, and I think crucially from a non-American perspective, people who made the show are not Americans. Um, that what you know the hideous binary that like american uh government and military has used to lightly justify any of the shit we've been doing for decades now uh is this like well you know the muslim world is against us completely forgetting of course that there are like millions of muslims in the united states right <laughs> and uh for one thing um and um and that, you know, I guess probably the the jingoey American version of this would have been, you know, a forsaking of all Islam or whatever, you know. But what it's showing is that, like, in his grief and, and anger, uh, he's finding something that's a part of who he is because of who his you know, biological father is and everything. And he's connecting to it that way, which is what, in its purest form, faith should do, Right. Um, to connecting you to yourself and to a, a sense of purpose and, and belonging in the world. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I think it's a kind of a subversion of, you know, what, like, right after Trump was put in power, like, the, the Muslim ban went in and all that stuff. And, and I think it's saying that, like, that, um, all that anti Muslim dogma and policy and war, warfare, um, does not uh you know crush the faith of a billion people um it you know it, it's not it's not so simple as to be choose one or the other um and uh it's personal in 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 this case at least and um yeah so i think it's i think it's a it's a it's a note that i don't think an american made show uh, or at least you know if americans had written and directed it would have made and the other moment of peace that sort of um comes right before it. We were talking at the top of this episode, this podcast about <clears throat> Jack Dylan Grazier's performance of Fraser and, and the kinetic energy sort of in his body and stuff like that. The moment of peace comes on like a FaceTime call or Skype call or whatever it was um, between Fraser and Harper as they just sort of like look quietly at each other Um and, you know, Fraser is falling asleep. Harper doesn't seem that sleepy. But anyway, just it's a moment of stillness and calm and connection is my uh, reading of it um, at the end of all this. And and a reaffirmation that like, okay, they they went their separate ways in this episode and, you know, either retreated into like, you know, Fraser's family circle or trying to like 
you know, see if he fit into Jonathan's circle and Harper trying to see if they fit into their own, uh, old circle and finding only that relief and, and calm with each other is, 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 is what I see here. Yeah. Um, you know, in that moment. So, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I, I think also just like, you know, watching Fraser fall asleep, it's like, okay, the day ended. You know, yeah, and we're gonna go to bed, and then we're gonna wake up, and it's gonna suck tomorrow. But like, there is still some rhythm to the world, even though so much of everything feels now knocked off course or out of orbit. Um, yeah, you know, like when my friend died, like I lived in a tiny studio apartment in in Manhattan, and uh, my uh, her other very good friend like came over and basically did not leave my tiny apartment for like four days, and she slept on my tiny shitty couch that reeked of cigarette smoke and we just kind of like you know woke up and kind of like had tried to have a day and then went to sleep and you know it was just like you did what you had to you know and that closeness felt really nice and they're teenagers they can't sleep over each other's houses especially on a night like that given what their parents are going through with each other um but it's just yeah i think it's just that like it's it's comforting to return to each other and also just to know that like um the body has its own rhythm and it like, you know, sleep's going to come and you're, then you're going to wake up and then that's going to keep happening and happening and happening until, um, not you're over it, but like time has passed at least. Yeah. So, I mean, like overall, um, this is, uh, barring the pilot, maybe my actual least favorite episode to watch, mm. but I think that's only, that's mostly because of the like, trauma or watching all these characters go through and i don't I, like the first time i watched it i didn't like it and i was like is this a bad episode and then i rewatched it again and then i was like no i think it's just it feels bad to watch it but that doesn't make it a bad episode i think it's actually a very good episode um and uh and i don't know uh where we're going uh next week and how it could possibly sort of wrap everything up um you know probably some fallout for uh Richard's family um but we'll see but but yeah i mean it's 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 a really interesting <clears throat> if this is being framed as a kind of before and after it's really interesting that the after is only two episodes so we've got the like trauma here and then what comes after the trauma um we shall see so yeah <laughs> Richard until next week until we wrap it up uh in Italy, uh, where can folks find you? Banging on the door of a movie theater, just trying to get in. <laughs> you know, what else could we do? Uh, while I wait, I'll be tweeting at Rylaws, writing on VF.com. Until our last trip to Northern Italy, Joanna, where will you be? I mean, technically, I'll be on the Upper East Side with you in New York, but oh, uh, yeah, also right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> undoing things that have already undoing been done. <laughs> but also, maybe listening to some Radiohead. I don't know. Um, yeah, so I will be grief listening to Radiohead and, uh, you can find me on vanityfair.com. You can find both of us on the podcast Little Gold Men. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This and we will see you, uh, again and again and again, uh, in the coming weeks.
The run for Revogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, who should be the mayor of New York? We all support yeah, that. we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K, and a winter okay. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>